You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces The Glenn Show and all other shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them highly unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America, and even the world, is looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Hello, John. How are you doing? Hey, Glenn. How are you? I'm getting by. Glenn Lowry here, bloggingheads.tv, The Glenn Show. Uh, I'm with John McWhorter. I teach at uh, Brown University, professor of economics there, and John is uh, teaches humanities at, at Columbia. We're the black guys. The black guys at blackheads.tv. John, I have to ask you, did you have a chance to read that uh, very nice tribute that Hyam Sveki, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, uh, who's a, a listener of ours, uh, uh, composed? Glenn, you know, it's this is going to sound so la-di-da because I did see that message, but it's gotten to the point. I'm flattered. I mean, I'm, I, I, I carry it with me. But there are enough people that seem to be into us lately that it's, I can't read it all. And so I, I did see that message, but I had such a busy week with teaching and the kids, et cetera, that I must admit I did not read it. What did he, what, well, what did it say? I hope I didn't miss something important. We have an Israeli fan. His name is Chaim. And, uh, Chaim is a young, uh, aspiring writer and, uh, he wrote a little piece a kind of satirical reaction to the vice presidential debate, which he shared with us. Mm-hmm. And I shared it with an editor at a, a publication and they liked it so much that they wanted to take it. And Chaim was grateful that I got him his first publication. This is a 30 year old Israeli uh, guy. He's a young writer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He wrote back. He said, I'm so grateful. Here is a, uh, a thank you. And the thank you is, I don't know, 500 word uh, tribute. Might be a thousand words. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it could be even longer than that. It's a long, uh, whimsical, uh, uh, witty, sharp, uh, 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 sharply observed uh, uh, tribute to the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, Glenn Lauer and John McWhorter. I'll read he it. He reprises what we do in our opening dialogue, our patter, our back and forth chemistry, uh, some of the... Uh, he realizes that us calling ourselves the black guys at bloggingheads.tv drips with irony that, that we are playing. Like he gets it, right. Yeah, yeah, he gets it. He gets it in a deep way. It's it's really very, very nice. I assure you, you won't regret spending the 15 minutes it takes to read this. I'll, I'll, I'll take, I really will take a look. Yeah. Yeah. I've just become overwhelmed. But yeah. We're the black oh, guys. Everybody should know, I'm not like trashing anything I see. But it's just that I can only read a select few at the end of the day, and I must admit I lost I lost that one. I'll, I'll take a look at it. Well, in a parallel universe somewhere, I think uh, the Glenn Show with uh, John McWhorter is going to have to develop a back room or something like that where we can kick around uh, some of the reactions to what it is that we have to offer in the main in Are the you main speaking dialogues. only hy- hypothetically here? 
Well, I don't know. We're going to just have to see what happens. I, I think we're ambitious here, and, and we want to see the Glen Show uh, uh, succeed. And, Folks, and he's, dropping, he's dropping a hint about something. That <laughs> Stay tuned. Actually we're, making in moves. The, yeah. we're making moves. Stay tuned. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, that's right. We'll see. Meanwhile, what are we talking about here, John? Um, well, one so thing. Ice Cube. And we Ice have Cube. the Shelby Steele documentary, which I think more people need to know about. And I think we can help. I hope we can help with that. Okay. Yeah, me too. Okay. So Michael two Brown. Issues. Yeah. Shelby Steele has uh, written the narration for and performed the narration for a film produced by his son, Eli Steele, who's a skilled filmmaker called What Killed Michael Brown? Glenn, and, hold yeah. on, Glenn. I, I have to stop you just for one second because I know I'm going to forget to do this. If I do, okay. do it now. I'm aligned Mitchell Dunnier in our last um, talk. I'm sorry, what did you do? Mitchell Dunnier. I'm aligned Mitch Dunnier, um, who was a Princeton sociologist. Oh, Mitch, the sociologist, the ethnographer. You maligned yeah. him. Oh, how'd you do that? You want to apologize quick. for that? I claimed that in his book, he celebrates black homeless men and castigates white middle-class women for not understanding why those men want to talk to them. My memory had degraded. That is not what Mitch writes. And Mitch wrote me the politest, the politest email where he questioned my take. You know, he was so like, he's like pretending to think that there's any chance that I was right. Questioned my take on what he wrote in the book. And to be honest, it had been close to 20 years and my memory had kind of degraded and I remembered it a certain way. I was wrong. It's actually a really great section of the work where he takes both sides. He knows how the black men feel, but he has the middle-class white women feeling guilty about the fact that they don't enjoy the way the black men are treating them. He shows both sides and he does not take a side. I misremember. And I just wanted to say that I take back what I said about not liking his work. Because Okay. Right Hold on a minute. I just want to be clear on this. Uh, so this, the situation is the cat call. The, the woman walks by and the right. guy says, hey, hey, baby, baby, how you doing? Right. And you're looking good today or whatever. And your memory of Mitch's treatment of that phenomenon was that it was simplistically defensive and protective of the guys making the cat call and insufficiently mm-hmm. sensitive to the situation of the woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, in the book, he is, has a nuanced treatment of the situation, which spends as much time on both sides of the divide and kind of gives he insight. Into understands it. how the women feel. He shows that a lot of them have the guilt that we would prefer that they have about how they feel. It's a really nuanced piece. And I uh-huh. read it wrong. And then I'm sitting here on the show saying, well, no, I don't approve of that. When really it's just that, you know, 16 or 17 years of memory fog. And Good to my get that one right. him in a certain classification that I think we justifiably put most academic sociologists in. He's not one of them. And so I just wanted well, to say, because I told him I would fall on my sword next time good. we talk. So I'm doing that. All right. Well, we stand uh, informed of your correction and grateful for it. Uh, set the record straight. You know, since we had that very interesting uh, discussion that we did have on ethnography, I was wondering what happened to Alice Goffman. And so I opened up my computer and found that she was denied tenure at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, she was an assistant professor of sociology there. Her book, On the Run, 
controversial book in which she embeds herself with some uh, gangbanger type guys who are, you know, on the lam from uh, warrants and whatnot, and the uh, cops are looking for them. And she describes their world and their lives, and she gets some say too close to her subjects, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, is toward the end of the book, she describes a situation where she's riding around driving a car in which these guys are armed and looking for the assailants of that killed one of the shot shot up one of their buddies to get revenge, and she's in effect implicated in, you know, what is undoubtedly a criminal activity and so forth. Uh, she also got into trouble. I go on just a little bit about this because I, I was very shocked um, that she didn't get tenure at Wisconsin and more than that. It feels like she's left academia. She's uh, living in uh, Philadelphia. She has a kid. Um, I don't know for sure what she's doing. I, uh, this is a v- extremely talented young woman. She was also attacked being a white woman and rendering the kind of uh, textured and, and uh, personally informed report about the life of, of this part of uh, um, urban America of, of, you know, doing, ex- exploiting in effect of, you know, trading on a kind of nativist account, a kind, you know, I'm in the jungle, here's how they swing from the vines, you know, let me give, you know, a blow by blow. Uh, so, uh, a charge that I thought was quite, quite unfair, but predictable given the way that... Uh, There's a big... Big, big dog pile on her. I didn't know that it would have this effect, but wow. She was denied okay. tenure. I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say anything more because this is something we could know about it with a little bit of effort, uh, what she's doing, what she's writing. Um, but uh, I was, because she's extremely talented. Uh, not only is On the Run a absolutely brilliant piece of ethnographic reportage, in my humble opinion, but uh, some of her other work that hadn't gotten published yet, she was working on food insecurity in Detroit and had, again, embedded herself with, uh, uh, you know, women and their children. And, you know, she's counting their calories. She had uh, pretty good documentation of exactly how they managed, you know, managed through the day, getting their kids out to school, uh, lying uh, still so as not to expend too much energy because there wasn't enough caloric uh, fuel in the diet to keep the women going, how they how they ate, what, what they ate. Um, and uh, so on, a, a very uh, talented uh, um, uh, scholar, and, and uh, I hope that she, uh, in the fullness of time, returns to her to that vocation because she's got a lot to, in my opinion, got a lot to offer. Alice Goffman. Okay, John, I'm sorry, just restarted us now. We broke off, uh, and I was describing Alice Goffman's work on food insecurity. So what were you saying about that? I was going to artfully break in and say, was there any? I'll say it again. Well, was there any? Because I have heard that this food desert thing is not true of a great many of the tracts that it's been described in. But anyway, go ahead. I don't. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to pretend to know. Uh, there was food insecurity in the community in which she was embedded because she was describing, you know, the 1,500 calories a day or whatever it was that these uh, people, people were consuming. It was, it was well not yeah. enough you know, and the management strategies for uh, juggling the food and getting the kids fed in the morning. and Oh, oh, you know, oh, we're talking about food. people who don't have enough to eat. This is yeah. not about there isn't a supermarket and so people go to the No, market. no, that's a, that's a different that's thing altogether. But in any case, it's a side point. This was one of the projects that Alice Goffman was working on that I thought quite promising and that gave, you know, evidence of her versatility, of her creativity, and um, of of her uh, empathy, you know, of her uh, uh, ability to, to cultivate these relationships with people 
and get them to share their lives with her and then to report in a structured way back to us. I mean, she was working on this uh, at the same time that um, Matthew Desmond was working on his uh, eviction project in Milwaukee. Um, so, uh, you know, hmm. it, 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 I hope she gets back to doing her work. But anyway, that's not what we came here to talk about. Ice Cube. So Ice Cube has issued a contract uh, with Black America in which he has some desiderata about what the race, what our folk need to advance. And he's been willing to talk with the Trump administration about his uh, ideas and has received a relatively positive response from the Trump administration. And that has engendered a great deal of consternation with people who wonder why he would ever talk to the Trump administration to which he responds, I'll talk to anybody who will talk to me. I sent my program over to the Democrats as well. They said they might want to take a look at it after the election, but not before Trump wanted to talk about it or his people did. So I'm talking to him. What? And uh, people are saying, well, you legitimize uh, uh, Trump. You, you give him credibility and whatnot. He's a racist. Everybody knows he's a racist. Why are you talking to him? And Ice Cube says black people will never get ahead until we learn how to talk to anybody who's in power. Trump's in power. Who knows? He could even get reelected again. All right. I can see why you wouldn't want him to, but he might. And if he did, we would want to be talking to him, wouldn't we? Like that. I'm just wondering what you make of that, because it it comes behind Kanye West, who also has been talking to uh, Trump people who said he admires Trump or words to that effect. Uh, and uh, whose uh, candidacy for president this is Kanye West. He actually has declared a candidacy for the presidency could well attract, I don't know, some write-in votes or whatever. Any votes that it gets, a vote taken away from Joseph Biden, I think you'd have to say. So um, we've got these rappers out there uh, making these noises that are a little bit uh, dissonant relative to the tenor of enlightened uh, African-American political expression. What do you make of that, John? (laughs) Well, Kanye West is an artistically brilliant, but clinically narcissist and apparently from what i've heard slightly unstable man are you talking about kanye kanye so and i mean the part about the artistic brilliance i mean here's where i'm trying to sound hip and i'm going to sound ancient because i'm going to say of my cds you know i've got five of his you know and it's not because i was trying to show that to anybody he's okay so he's a good musician but you said he's unstable because he wants to be president or because he thinks i hear that he really does have some sort of mental problems and more to the point he is very very much into himself he's actually just like trump in that way and so what he's doing is being all about himself and making a big show i don't take him seriously at all but with ice cube we're talking about something different nothing shows up the bad aspect of the way we think about race now compared to in the past than the fact that back in the day if you were a civil rights leader there was no question as to whether or not who you were going to negotiate with was racist or not they were all you know complete bigots and you just figured you are going to get the most that you can out of these people however they feel about black people today there's this caveat that the good person is supposed to have which is that before we ask for anything they must not be racist And that's something that Martin Luther King would have had no idea what to do with. Now, let's say, and thank God, I think it's unlikely at this point, but let's say that Trump has another four years. Four years is a long time. If there's going to be another four years of the jackass, well, you have to work with him. And frankly, if you can get some things through that would help the black community, that he might, even in blindness with his people, 
stand behind, then that's a good thing because life passes and poor black people need help every month of the year. And so to say, I won't deal with Trump because that legitimizes him is just, it's religious, it's limp, it's damp, it's babyish, it's pious. Okay, if he's in for another four years, I sound like you, he is legitimate. And therefore, if that's the only power that you have to work with, then you do that. And for Ice Cube, it's, you know, it's one thing for me to say it, but you know, I wear cardigan sweaters and I went to private school, so I'm not legitimate. But with Ice Cube, here is this person who is as authentic as can be, and that's how he feels. And I think that it's very authentic. I agree with him. So I just want to understand why Kanye West isn't authentic. I mean, he is, or he's crazy and authentic, or or what? I mean, Kanye West is not a thinker, one. I mean, oh, but Ice Cube is. In 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 a, in a way, yes, he is. Kanye, Ice Cube is a very reflective person. Ice okay. Cube has a sense so, of. So let me just play this out. I want to defend Kanye West for a minute in the following sense. So what about how? Okay. So so what about the issue? Suppose he says, and this is true. The abortion rate amongst African-Americans is very high, much higher than it is amongst whites. There are, I don't know, four times as many white as black women in the country. And uh, some years there's as many or more abortions amongst black women than whites. Very close. We can look up the numbers. The clinics are located in black communities. Now, the feminists, this is me translating Kanye, channeling Kanye West. The feminists will say uh, women have a right to their bodies and so forth and so on. And I will say this is black genocide. Now, I'm just counting the bodies. There are many of them. I, lo- I notice where the Planned Parenthood clinics are located. They're located near their market, and their market happens to be disproportionately relative to population numbers black. I don't think this is healthy for my people. I'm a Christian, and I think that's life that's getting destroyed. It's black life. Now, what's wrong with that? I mean, a lot could be wrong with it. Uh, you can have a very strict pro-choice view of the world in which you rejected that argument on the kinds of grounds that we know pro-choice people will reject that argument. But is it anti-black? Is there something unblack about that argument? So the subversive act of giving voice to that uh, from a platform where you can get, you know, uh, millions of Twitter followers and you can you can make make the discourse sound different than what it actually sounds. That's not, you know, to me, something that we should look, you know, unkindly at. I mean, you might be doing a service by shaking things up a little bit. Or the border. You can, I mean, I can extend these arguments. You see where I'm going? These are, these are going to be kind of like arguments that might cause a black person to think twice before they rejected Donald Trump. Oh, sure. They might say he's pro-life and, you know, we might want to be pro-life. They might say it. There's nothing anti-black about being pro-life. Or they might say, uh, look, we're really concerned about low-skilled workers coming across the border because they compete with our people. Have you looked at the uh, profile of the educational attainment and whatnot and look at the employment rates and, and occupational and whatnot? And uh, we, 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 have, we have a different view than, I don't know what, the liberal black uh, congressional delegation or whatever about the border issues. It's a view that's friendlier to the way that Donald Trump looks at the world. Um, what 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 would be so crazy about that? Or, and I understand this to be something of what Ice Cube is saying, have y'all studied any game theory? It's a bargaining situation. If you don't have any threats, you don't have any power. If you're just going to be in lockstep, 
everybody's going to take you for granted. I mean, they may like you. They may, they may really care about your well-being, but they're going to take you for granted. They're not going to bend. They're not going to, they're not going to allow you to shape what it is that they do because you don't have any power because you're not, uh, you don't have any margin. You don't have any leverage. So we should have leverage. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be in lockstep. Um, something like that. I mean, I, I could see a respectable ice cube esque argument about um, black people decoupling a little bit from the uh, the engine, which is the Democratic Party, and and having some maneuvering room. Oh no, no, no. I I think I didn't put my view properly because no, it's not the positions. I mean, for example, if you think of abortion as murder. There's no smackdown argument against that. That doesn't make you some kind of fool. If you see abortion as murder, there is nothing that anybody is going to tell you that's going to talk you out of it. And I completely understand why. I don't agree. I think there's there's a fuzzy line. And my feeling is that, well, at a certain point, you have to stop thinking of it that way. That's just me. And so, no, it's not that. I mean, I would guess that most black people are pro-life. It's a very ordinary thing. It's not unblack to resent, for example, all of those Planned Parenthood um, um, establishments in or near black communities. I fully get that. And all the other kinds of positions. My issue with Kanye, I mean, here's one. Some years ago, his idea was what we do about the Confederate flag is we start putting it up and we start wearing it on our shirts and we say, hey, now it's ours. That was good. You know, it, it's crude, but the idea that if you see some frat boys hanging the Confederate flag over the porch of their fraternity somewhere in Mississippi, then the black fraternity across the street starts hanging the same flag. Frankly, that would work. That would take care of that after about two months. He was right. I get it. No, with Kanye, the problem is how dare you, quote unquote, run for president? Because suppose (laughs) that attracts people because he's so sexy and famous and it splits the vote and the jackass stays president. That's extremely unwise. And the only reason he would do it is because he is narcissistic and, frankly, not thinking very hard. But, no, it's not the positions. Oh, you can take many positions that I don't agree with. And as far as I'm concerned, you are still fighting for your own people. It's just that Kanye is, I think, what did Barack Obama, Barack Obama call him a jackass? I always think of him as a chucklehead. It's just, Kanye, just sit down. But, no, it's not the views. It's, it's what he's doing. I like Kanye. I don't mind what he's doing. I, I think its impact on the election will be negligible. It looks like Biden is actually going to win this election. Don't you think? I mm-hmm. mean, he's ahead in all the swing states and so I'm forth. not worried anymore. It'll take yeah. another miracle of the 2016 variety for Trump to uh, skate by. And 2016 already happened. People are more so, vigilant. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. It does, it does feel uh, like it's going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I like Kanye, I want to say one thing about abortion. Uh, I don't think it's murder myself, but I do think it's death. I mean, I think that the opportunity to choose abortion vital to a woman's autonomy, when elected as a choice on a scale beyond a certain level within a community, is an indication of unhealth in the social fiber somehow of that community. It's not what we would rather have. There, there's, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pathos. There's a lot of loss. There's, there, there's something that's not entirely healthy there. And uh, I'm alarmed uh, at the statistic, though, not for the reasons that a uh, doctrinaire pro-choice, I should say pro-life person, might be alarmed. I'm not counting black babies and saying it's genocide. 
Uh, but I'm saying when I look at my community, I see this reality and I wonder, I wonder what it uh, betrays about the uh, character of the intimate relations between men and women about family reproduction. You put that alongside single parenthood and things like that and multi, multi-partner uh, paternity and household organization, disorganization and whatnot. And I, I don't know that you've got you've got a healthy profile. I know people are going to get very mad at me about no, saying no. that a high abortion rate is an indicia indicator of social ill health. But I'm sorry, that's that's my all, personal view. All it is is the way to put it, and I've seen this done from the Brookings Institution. It's that too many pregnancies are accidental. That's all. That's why. Well, that's I right. You're the you're the uh, 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 wait, contraceptive. You want everybody yeah. to get the long-lasting contraceptive, long-term uh, reversible contraceptives, and that sounds so clinical. It's like, why does this male, you know, person, you know, who's you know writing about race, why does he care so much about IUDs and things that you put in your arm? Because of that. Because what those abortions are about, and also what all of those, frankly, children born a little too early to people who are a little too poor, that whole cycle. What that's about is somebody who you know, slipped up because that's what the body does. And then if, if you're against abortion, and a lot of those women are, and that's fine, then you have the kid. And so really it should just be that you should be able to not worry about that for five-year, three-year, or five-year increments. And it would be easier to not have a kid until you're probably partner and certainly have some kind of job history. And in the main thing, you're, you're a grown-up. And, of course, this is the James Q. Wilson formulation about how nobody's poor who waits until they're 21 and something like married and has a job and until they have a kid. And everybody says, well, that's punitive. But let it's, me, all, let me just add, it's also true. Excuse me again for interrupting. I just wanted to add, uh, I think it's Isabel Sawhill. I think it's a Brookings Institution report. They call it the success. I'm quoting her. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure James Q. Wilson would have, would have endorsed it or did endorse it when he was living. Ian Rowe, uh, my uh, friend and colleague at the 1776 Unite Project, uh, the uh, charter school entrepreneur from New York who's now at the American Enterprise Institute, has uh, put out a report uh, from the American Enterprise Institute about uh, what uh, more successful outcomes for African-American youngsters in the cities would require. And he touts the success sequence, which is you complete school, you get a job, you marry, you have a kid. If you do those things in that order, um, then uh, the chances that you're going to be poor are essentially nil. I mean, the fraction of mm-hmm. people who do those things and who mm-hmm. live in poverty is a very small number. Um, yeah. And, and you know, it's probably not bad advice to do those things. Um, mm-hmm. so, but that's not what we came here to talk about. But I, anyway, the point the point being that, yes, the abortion rates were alarming. Yes, people should read Isabel Sawhill. That's what I was just parroting. That's where I kind of got my commitment to this sort of thing. And nobody could read her work and think that this is racist work. This is just about humanity and how to make humanity feel better and do better and prosper more. So, yeah, that's why I was mentioning those things. She's an old school liberal who uh, this is Bell Sawhill, Isabel Sawhill, Brookings Institution as it happened, she and I were both inducted on the same stage as distinguished fellows of the American Economics Association. Hmm. No more than four persons are given that award in any given year. So I'm in very rarefied company with Bell Sawhill. Hmm. Um, and uh, my old mentor, uh, the late, great Phyllis Wallace, African-American woman economist who 
was uh, one of my mentors when I was in graduate school and Sawhill were very, were very good friends. So Bella has been around for a long time. She's a liberal in the, you know, great society, uh, war on poverty um, mold, at least she was, but uh, she didn't uh, lose her sense of, you know, balance and proportion and uh, never jettisoned the idea that social structure and familial and informal, you know, family relations and whatnot, the crucible within which youngsters are being, uh, are being raised. So it's an important part of, you know, dealing with the poverty problem and willing and willing to say so, not with a wagging finger that you should live like this and not like that. Never, never rather, you know, with the data to back up the practical wisdom of marriage before childbearing and uh, uh, the importance of work and attachments to work and things of this kind. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, what about, what about yeah. Shelby Steele? The, okay. So we're going to shift gears here. Okay. So um, do you want me to do a setup on this? This is a film. Please set it up. Yeah. That is uh, just been published. Now Shelby Steele, the Hoover Institution. Uh, Documentary. Of our character 1990, his classic book. He's written many books since. Uh, they're all in some way or another kind of the same book, man. But I mean, after I watched this documentary film that he's put out, I'm, I'm not sorry for that. I think I think the points need reiterating. Okay. So he, he and his son and wife, uh, Rita Steele, is a behind-the-scenes producer. Eli Steele is the camera uh, and uh, the filmmaking and Shelby Steele is the narrator uh, and scriptwriter for this documentary film, What Killed Michael Brown, a film which has been written about in the Wall Street Journal because Amazon Prime declined to allow it to be streamed on their platform. For a bit. Pardon? I think it's up now, but for a bit, they were well, holding it up. I don't know that it's up at Amazon Prime. It's up at uh, Vimeo. The uh, streaming service. I'm seeing reports on social media that people have been watching it on Amazon Prime, but only recently they held it up. Is okay. What well, they held it up with the initial statement was that it did not meet their content quality standards. And they informed the filmmakers that their decision was final. They would not entertain any appeal uh, uh, about about the decision. So maybe the most recent circumstances that they finally allowed it to stream on this. There's server. no reason why I shouldn't do this. While you keep setting it up, I'm yep. going to look and see if it's on Amazon Prime because a lot of people have been saying that all day. Okay. I want to see. So keep going. Okay. Well, I'm just going to set this up. So um, they've made a film. Uh, it is centered in Ferguson, Missouri, but it's very ambitious and it, rain, it ranges, ranges substantially beyond. They're taking on the question, what is the right narrative in the context of these encounters between police and black men uh, where uh, the police end up taking someone's life? They're, they're challenging the raison d'etre of Black Lives Matter. They're saying, is that the story? And uh, I don't want to do too much of this setup without, without it's up. the conversation, John. Because, Prime has it. Yeah. Pardon? It is? Prime has it. It's up. Prime so has I, it now? Okay, eight. it's up now. They, they, delayed, they delayed putting out. I guess it they couldn't is. withstand the heat, man. If they yeah. were going to stick by that decision, they were going to get a whole lot of blowback. Um, it's me. conservative, okay, in the small C sense. It is not partisan politics. It's not pro-Trump. It's not any, but it's definitely, it's Booker T. Washington-esque in some of the framing uh, of it. I mean, it is an emphasis on responsibility. It is a uh, withering condemnation of the the infantilizing 
consequences of the excesses of the welfare state in terms of um, depriving African-Americans of the uh, expectation uh, that we would be able to take care of ourselves. Um, it, it is, it is uh, beautifully organized around this very simple kind of syllogism that Shelby Steele has elaborated about white guilt and about black insecurity, about uh, white innocence and about black victimhood, about the corruption of this mutually reinforcing need for white people to feel uh, ex- uh, freed from the historical uh, uh, accusation is historical condemnation for their racism and for black people to feel competent and uh, uh, able to hold our heads high in uh, circumstances in which uh, there, there might be substantial racial disparity. Um, he says things, this is Shelby Steele, and I don't want to go on too long here, uh, just to give some sense of, of the, the kind of worldview of the film. He says, race is always and everywhere a corrupt will to power. Race is always about trying to get power. People are playing race in order to maneuver themselves into positions of power. Either blacks who want a seat at the table that they may not have earned or whites who want to be uh, relieved from, want to get a dispensation. They want the Pope, you know, to wave over them and say, it's okay, go and sin no more. Uh, affirming their innocence. And he says that what happens is that white innocence becomes more important than black development. Whites are willing to see blacks infantilized and propped up, uh, lying prostrate before the society, unable to take care of their own uh, existential needs, uh, dependent upon white largesse, because the act of that responding with that largesse is a cleansing act. It's an act that allows the white to be to feel that they're acknowledging black pain, they're acknowledging black suffering, they're acknowledging white supremacy and white racism, and they're giving. They're giving, uh, if it's a, a wealthy corporation, hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, the political cause. They're giving, if it's a college student sitting in the classroom, from their heart and their soul as they identify with the sufferings of their black students and apologize for their own white privilege, they are, uh, in that way, proving themselves to be innocent, innocent of the claim of racism. And in order for that to work, blacks have to be victims. We can't be agents of our own world-making will. We we can't see a future for ourselves and bring it to pass. But for uh, the, uh, the reason we can't do that is because implacable white white racism stands in our way. I'm, I I fear I must stop now because I'm doing a very poor job representing this worldview. Which I mean, I'm just saying these are just words. When you watch the film. Uh, which is beautifully made. I mean, it is, I'm not a cinematographer, but it looks like the real deal to me. I mean, it looks the way it's cut, the way it's edited, the way it's shot. It's, it's a little Spike Lee-like. Yeah. It, it, it has very high, well, I don't know where Amazon's talking about, doesn't meet their quality standard. I mean, it, it has very high marks in terms of the of just the, the uh, filmmaking. Uh, the, the narration, I mean, Shelby Steele is a better writer than Ta-Nehisi Coates. Can I say that? I mean, it's not close. It's not close. Um, they're both good writers, but Steele's a better writer <laughs> because down underneath the poetic simplicity of Steele's language in these oppositions is, I think, a robust and deeply interesting uh, moral philosophic argument. 
And there's nothing like that in Ta-Nehisi Coates. There is no argument. I'm sorry, y'all gonna get mad at me because I'm gonna point out the obvious thing. There's no argument. Uh, but uh, there, there, there's a remonstration. There is a, a gesticulation. There is a, an artful uh, cry of pain. There is, there is anger and rage and fury and alienation. Uh, but uh, I don't know that there's any real argument. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's a good Steel point. Has, Steel has a deep, philosophically sophisticated, in my opinion, uh, take. And the the thing, and I'll stop. I know I'm big going on. The thing that amazes me is he first said this in 1990. That's he the first thing. said this thing pretty much word for word 30 years ago, and it's still resonant. I mean, this should win an Emmy or something like it because it's that good. He won an Emmy in 19. 19- 93 or whatever it was for that Bensonhurst documentary. He even overlays some of the uh, information that he got from the Bensonhurst and the Al Sharpton of the 1990s into this film. It's like the exact same argument still holds. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I'm exuberant about this film. I'm very excited about it. I think it really hits it out of the park and should be an important counterpoint in the, in the national discussion right now. All right, John is back. Uh, the girls are in front of a screen. Uh, the friend has been sent home, and all is well in the world. John, you're all a dad. Well. I am. You know, I thought that documentary was invaluable on many levels. One of them is that we live in an era where as many people would rather listen and watch than read. And what that documentary really is, is, I have to put this carefully, but that book that Shelby has written several times in the form that I think most people today under 40 would be more likely to take it in as. Agreed. If you haven't read the content of her character, if you think that a book that was written 30 years ago was too old to be heeded, then I can understand that. See this, and what you get is a boil down, not even a boil down, you get a present foundational ideas, which were highly inspirational to mine. The way he wrote inspired my whole sense of how race works. It inspired me to speak my piece. I think if I hadn't read the content of our character, we wouldn't be doing this now. And he gets it all across. And something invaluable about that documentary also is that it makes it very clear what really happened on that street in Ferguson in graphic terms. I think a lot of people missed that because a lot of it was cast largely in words. It was cast in print. And most people aren't going to read the Justice Department report, et cetera. But they do a really good job of showing who walked where on that pavement. They have voiceover artists actually reading the testimony of people describing what actually happened as opposed to what his one friend said that happened in order to create a story. You know, that whole business about hands up is basically – the creation of Michael Brown's friend Dorian, who made it up because he was caught up in the moment. But what actual people said after the dust had scattered, it's largely something you read about at the time. And frankly, it didn't penetrate a lot of the black community. I know that. But you can listen. They have voiceover artists. And frankly, the voiceover artists are black people and they sound black. So you hear authentic sounding people saying what really happened on that street. And it really does get across that Darren Wilson was maligned, and they show. I must admit, I read much more than I watch the news. Darren Wilson's doing an interview 
with George Stephanopoulos, where he explains what happened. It's impossible to look at him and think that this is a little racist who is distorting the truth and lying to save himself. He describes what happened, which is that Michael Brown, for reasons we'll never completely know. It made me think of... Excuse me, it made me think of George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin context. Same thing. Once you get case, to see the guy, it's it, the, the narrative the doesn't quite compel you in the same way. This villain. Yeah, it's clear that this is somebody who's being lunged at by somebody much bigger than him who would not stop lunging at him and who really had a reasonable fear of losing his life. And I will always wonder, and I'm told that I shouldn't wonder, you've got the gun. Can't you shoot the person in the shins? Can't you make it so that they can't walk? But Instead, I'm told that people are taught to shoot to kill, but you certainly understand why he fired the gun. And he fired it several times, and Mike Brown kept coming. And that's what happened, and that is what is corroborated by the very black people who lived on the street. You see this in a way that no amount of stories in the New York Times would ever explain to you. And then finally, you have Shelby Steele going through these communities and actually showing what they look like. And he has lots of black people in these communities saying the sorts of things he's been saying for 30 years. So it's not, you know, bow-tied conservative black people of the sort of Ward Connerly sense and no knock on Ward, but where you say, well, they're not representative. They don't really even think they're black, et cetera. Instead, you've got these often dark skinned people with thick black sense. And no, I'm not obsessing over that. It does matter. Thick, Black sense talking about what has happened to their communities. And it really does make a case that, frankly, Shelby can't make for himself in his very lapidary books. You know, he is a prose artist. I don't know whether he or Coates are better. Really, I don't know where I would fall on that. But he's a prose artist, but he's not passionate. He's not on fire. And so for many people, he's too cool. And I mean cool as opposed to not hot. And in this, you see other people taking up his same point, and you can see that they're not inauthentic. They're not right-wing think tankers or something like that. They're not, frankly, they're not us. And it really does make a statement. The one flaw that I see in it is that, you know, what killed Mike Brown? And what this guy did is he, first of all, stole cigarillos, whatever those are, from a convenience store and pushed the owner aside. He had done that like 10 seconds before all this happened. 10 seconds is like, you know, hyperbolic, but still. Then Darren Wilson tells them to stop walking down the middle of the street and Mike Brown punches him in the face and tries to take his gun and then keeps lunging at him. And you have to ask, why? Why did he do that? And I think that the documentary assumes that it's explained why by talking about the rise of white guilt. It even describes welfare entitlement and how welfare was practically forced on people who hadn't been using it before. And next thing you know, you have a black community that's denied a basic sense of agency over their own fate. True. Why did that boy knock over the convenience store? Why wouldn't he get out from the middle of the street? And I have my answers, but I'm not sure that the documentary quite explains that in a way that would convince the person from the left, the person, the fact checker at Amazon or something like that, who's waiting for a certain narrative that Mike Brown felt alienated by a white society that didn't like him or something like that. I'm not well, sure. Fully, you know, why did that community where there's no sense of agency mean that this teenager decided to fight a cop for no particular reason? That's a tough one. And I think I understand why, but the documentary doesn't completely explain that. Well, they they point at, at the end, uh, Steele points in a direction. He says, if Mike Brown had had any sense of his own worth, 
if, if he had had, if he had internalized, uh, you know, affirmation of his worth, he wouldn't have thrown his life away by running at a police officer. Now, that's not an answer to your question. Uh, it doesn't feel it, right it, to me. It, it, it suggests a spiritual kind of mm-hmm. account where mm-hmm. it's the it's the lack of a sense of dignity and worth of the person with mm-hmm. internalized to themselves that allows them to uh, you know to I don't get that from their, Mike now. their lives. Yeah, I don't think that's why it was. I think all indications are that he actually was rather proud of himself. He was cocksure and that he was acting out. And this is something that is discussed in the documentary, although not directly tied to him, acting out a sense that authentic blackness is being anti-authoritarian. And, you know, I know on um, reliable but unofficial evidence, I guess I can say this here. I know people, white people who employed Black people who knew the Browns well. I just happened to. This is by chance. I'm not a reporter. I didn't go digging. I just happened to know such people. And those white people who are very close to those black workers and the black workers are, you can, they're telling the truth and they did know the Browns. They say that there was no good news from that family. That this yeah. it's All it's right. not that Mike Brown was walking around not liking himself. Mike Brown was exactly, made that observation here before actually. It looks like in the pictures, and I think you can kind of get that. And so the question is, why did he think that being anti-authoritarian is the essence of blackness? And I think that does come from the '60s, and it does come from the fact that you don't have a genuine identity because people have been taught not to. People have been taught that it's okay for a black person not to work for themselves. That doesn't mean that a great many black people don't, but the idea is that it's normal for a black person not to in your community, that that's okay. And that it's kind of understandable. I, I think so what are you going to fill in? Our speculations, you know, about what Michael Brown's motive uh, might be. I don't know how, how valuable they are. At least I'd say that for my own speculations. Yeah. Um, but, but I, but I think still puts his, his finger on a number of different things. And, Maybe it's not so much about the enigma of Michael Brown as it is about us, about how we processed his death, what we made of it. Uh, there's some very striking uh, imagery here of uh, people in the streets, of rioting, of protest. The fifth anniversary of Michael Brown's death, this would be 2019, I reckon. Uh, they are, uh, you know, a ceremony acknowledging Michael Brown in the event, remembering on the fifth anniversary, and the father's out there protesting. He's demanding for a new investigation. Uh, they want the uh, bodega that uh, Brown strong-armed those cigarettes out of before he was killed by Darren Wilson shut down, or they want it turned over to the community, whatever that means, owned by these this immigrant family of Middle Eastern or whatever people who are trying to make an Indian, I guess, but trying to make a living there. Uh, the uh, uh, he, he talks about ritualized protests. He says they're not even really protest. I mean, it's like they're going through the motions. It's like a performance. It's like they're enacting something. You know, it, it kind of, uh, he talks about how this whole phenomenon, he's got some uh, good footage of um, of uh, your man, uh, uh, Al Sharpton, yeah. preaching the eulogies for these people and talking about hands up, don't shoot. We are, you know, it's the poetic truth. That's what Shelby calls it. He calls it the poetic truth. The poetic truth is that Michael Brown was Emmett Till. The, the poetic truth is that he was gunned down in the street by a vicious cop. 
doesn't matter whether or not that actually happened. It fits the necessity of this dynamic going on between black and white, a victim and innocence and, uh, uh, you know, uh, attributing everything to the external force, the implacable external force of racism, depriving of agency. So the, the, um, uh, the friend Dorian or whatever his name was, who made up this story about hands up, don't shoot, uh, had a very uh, fruitful imagination because he characterized something in this perfect metaphor, hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot. That could become a chant that could become the uh, mantra uh, for this uh, ritualistic reenactment of black suffering. Uh, mm-hmm. Shelby talks about how we lose, you know, the past becomes the present because the tropes from the past, the lynchings and the, uh, the you know, the, the Holocaust of slavery and whatnot are, are useful props in this drama, this contemporary drama of exhibiting African-American victimhood and uh, ex- extorting, in effect, this uh, kind of uh, a recompense from uh, a guilty white society. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know what really sticks out in that documentary when you see so many of these clips and and depictions is there's a performative aspect to so much of this rhetoric. And not only in church, where you can understand it to an extent, but it's on television, it's in these just general assemblies that you see that a lot of these people are doing a routine. It's a performance. They're using the sonics of black english intonation they're using the rhymes they're saying things like this ain't your daddy's civil rights movement anymore and of course you know it's wrong for anybody to stand by and ask well why is it what were they doing wrong you're not supposed to ask that you're just supposed to go along with the music and you know anthropologically you could imagine somebody doing an analysis where you think there is a high volume there's a high value placed on performativeness in this culture that can sometimes be antithetical to actually helping people. And there's a whole question you could get into as to why these people are so built on playing that victim role vastly out of proportion to what logic would dictate. And you see this again and again, where you just think that person is pushing it because of the sounds of the words, because it makes people say, amen because it probably helps them be popular. I can't help thinking that with a lot of the men, it probably helped their romantic lives. white liberals need to, to hear that said so that they can then be feel this expiation of uh, the relief and their, their, their kind of uh, go and sin no more kind of uh, uh, innocence. Uh, Although you notice that often they're talking just to each other. This is within the black community. That way of speaking is a way of prayer almost. It's, it's just, it's ceremonial. And um, white people standing there guilty are supposed to take it seriously. But what that means is that in 2019, there are people who are saying we should reopen the Michael Brown case when the facts were so plain. It's clear, or, you know, that we're going to take over this place that Michael Brown stole from. Is it? Well, it's not going to be reopened. You know. I want to touch on a couple more things. I mean, one of the things he said that I thought was just very profound, he said, uh, and this is almost a quote, he said, King appealed to American honor. Black Lives Matter appeals to American guilt. He said the difference between the movement of the 50s and 60s, which was appealing to a, a sense of American honor, it presupposed 
the uh, virtue of the overall American experiment and called America to live up to it. Uh, the 1619 Project, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones says she takes it as a badge of honor that they would call the George Floyd riots the 1619 riots. That's a badge of honor, okay? Mm-hmm. That's not appealing to the, uh, to the dignity of the American experiment. That, that, is a, uh, uh, that is a straightforward transaction of guilty white people saying, yeah, you're right, we ain't nothing. The country ain't worth a goddamn uh, we're really very sorry. And here's some reparations. Here's some reparations. You know, um, the difference between those two moments in American history, the, the present moment um, and this moment of a half century or more ago, um, I thought I thought he uh, put his finger on something important. You know, one thing, though, that I really missed, and I, really I should just ask the man, but the great society and Shelby Steele, he shows pictures of himself with the Afro and smoking and he yeah. is a radical Back in the yeah. 60s, and he's participating in the Great Society movement in East St. He looks, he looks a little bit like Stokely Carmichael as somebody with the Afro. He and then the, does. He looks the just suit. like him in one of those pictures. Yeah. And, like, he's he was there, and he did it for three years. And I always want to ask, I should just ask him, what went wrong? Like, you always say the Great Society didn't work. I was there, and those programs didn't work. What didn't work? And even in the documentary, he talks about how – you know, there were these teenagers who were taken from the Pruitt Igo housing project who were supposed to come and, you know, get some rehabilitation and yeah. they never showed up. Okay. I guess that happened one month, but what were you doing for the other, you know, 35 months? What happened? And I'm sure that we would learn a lot from it. There's a book about, um, Bed Stuyvesant written by Michael, um, Woodsworth. And it's about the great society movement in Bed Stuy, Brooklyn, here in New York. And why the programs didn't work. He really granularly gets into what was happening on the ground, people who were trying to make a difference for their communities, why it didn't work, despite the fact that the community was blanketed with almost a cartoon, like a repetition of the New Deal of programs. You would never have known any of it had happened, say, by 1976. I wish Shelby would do that in the documentary. What did not happen? He does offer a kind of an account. I mean, it's indirect. This is the film uh, What Killed Michael Brown uh, by Shelby and Eli Steele um, that's just been released. And, and um, they say, they, they, they talk about how the vision of the great society tear down the uh, uh, slum and build the housing project. Mm-hmm. We're going to create an environment where uh, the Negro is going to prosper. And he's saying there already was an environment in which the Negro was prospering. He's saying that wasn't a slum. It was an organic community. You tore down apartments that people actually own. They actually own some of it. Uh, and he talks about the percentage of people. Sometimes more than the whites next door, right? Exactly. Even in the census tract next door, which was mostly white, there was a lower level of home ownership. Uh, all that got knocked down in order to build these uh, towers, which they ended up blowing up. Uh, and which were symbolically representative. They have Howard Cusick, the housing expert at the, at the Manhattan Institute on there, symbolically indicative of a failure of a vision about how to create a great society, not relying on the structures that were already present within the community. This is this was the argument. Uh, he then uh, reminisces about how his father got along, what his father's outlook on life was, how important property ownership was to him. There's a certain kind of 
vision of it's a very Bob Woodson-esque, you know, empowering people at the local level. Don't have a bureaucracy do for people what it is that they can be taught uh, and enabled to do for themselves. Uh, before the Great Society came, the black community was actually stronger, implied by the film implies, uh, than it was 10 years after uh, the dust settled on the 1960s uh, in terms of uh, uh, so- Glenn, social fiber. Let yeah. me ask you. Let me ask you a question as somebody who you're going you're to be better equipped than I am to, to answer this. Now, the implication of all of that is that it would have been better if we had just stuck with that. And there are these, quote unquote, slum communities, but there's a coherence in them. And there are people who are getting by and it's going to get better. So it's these people living in, you know, what most of the August Wilson plays are in. And the yeah. idea is it's going to get better. And so we don't need to have the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We don't need to have the I don't know that that follows, but go ahead. What we don't need is model cities uh, and, uh, you know, the EEO, uh, not EEO, the uh, uh, economic opportunities uh, efforts. But no, I'm just hypothetically taking it further. Somebody might say. Okay, go take it further. Okay. We didn't need to have the government out of that. And so black people could have done it themselves. And we didn't need to have the 70s and 80s where we decided that it's socially impolite to be racist. We could have done without all that, just like the Irish and the Italians and Jewish people didn't need any of that. So we could have just kept going, and that would have been fine. Do you think, because what people thought in, say, 1967, the sorts of things that you know Rustin was writing in commentary, was that the coming of automation, as it was called, that automation was going to make it so that black people couldn't move up in the way that Irish and Italians had, that there were special conditions. Is that true? Or maybe could it be? Because I'm beginning to flirt with the idea that I almost wish that the 60s hadn't happened and that it had been the way somebody like Woodson seems to prefer. He's a figure who I greatly admire. Was automation really going to make it? And deindustrialization going to make it so that it was unfair to suppose that what Shelby is saying his father did could have been a general model for success. Yeah, I'm going to say, uh, if I have to give a yes or no answer to that, uh, yes, the changing structure of economic organization in urban areas definitely imposed uh, serious limitations on what could be done. I mean, uh, Thomas Segrew's book about Detroit, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, which chronicles the decline of Detroit with the uh, decentralization, with the foreign competition, with uh, auto and steel and rubber and whatnot going down, a number of jobs uh, for, uh, uh, you know, modestly skilled uh, people uh, that paid a decent wage uh, becoming more limited. You're calling it automation. I mean, I think it was a lot of things. It was jobs moving to the south where there weren't unions. There were jobs moving offshore where it was cheaper. There was technical change of a variety of different sorts. Uh, skill bias, technical change, which put a premium on certain kind of skills, but for people who could barely read and write, uh, they were they were in trouble. I think those were real things, uh, which <coughs> required some response, not only to deal with the Negro problem, quote unquote, but to deal with the general social need occasioned by uh, shifting economic realities. Um, so uh, I, I I don't want to, you know, William Julius Wilson isn't isn't uh, Imagining uh, the uh, uh, structural limitations on uh, social mobility 
occasioned by jobs leaving uh, the central uh, metropolitan areas and moving and moving away. That's that's a real thing. It's not the only thing that's going on. And the emphasis in the film, of course, is not so much on economic, but it's on social policy and dependency. It's on welfare and housing policy. Um, and they point out that even after you blew up the big scale housing projects, you sort of crept in the back door with a, a related kind of strategy of Section 8 subsidy to the rents of uh, people who moved to near in suburbs and uh, reproduced and the kind of environment Ferguson. that you see in Ferguson, right. which uh, Michael Brown was embedded in. Um, so there's a lot of talk about the church in this, uh, in this film. I mean, more witness from the religious side than I would have necessarily thought. And I think they're trying to point maybe Woodson inspires this to some degree at a, um, you know, organic response to the need for, uh, social cohesion that might come through intermediate institutions like religious institutions, uh, there's a line in there, well, if Michael Brown had known somebody like, and then this is a mentor who's on camera being interviewed, who, you know, may have had a checkered background, been in prison, come out, got his uh, act together and helping other men uh, go straight. If Michael Brown had known a guy like him, maybe he wouldn't have ended up dead. That's suggesting big brother, ministry to men, you know, outreach, you know, doesn't have to be theological, uh, but the organizational embeddedness of the church uh, could be one part of a internally generated, not a policy, but a communal response to to the situation at hand. Yeah, that that part made me sad because I mean, you have to bring it to scale. Let's face it; there have been churches who did that kind of. There are always those ex-cons who went straight and want to make sure that people don't follow their pathway. That's a standard figure. There's the woman who opens up her house and gets a property and has a kind of a school that teaches you life skills to the women. And those people are doing, as it's often called, God's work. But those have been stock figures. Stock is the wrong word, but those have been stanch, stolid figures in underprivileged black communities since really about 1960. There are always those people. And they cannot make a real difference because you have to bring it to scale. And frankly, it was with the George W. Bush administration with the Faith-Based and Community Initiatives where the idea was, if it's going to come through the church, we've got to give people big bucks in order to do it in a big way. And that was considered infelicitous, really, because nobody wanted to hear it coming from Republicans and partly because of issues of church and state. But the truth is that final about 25 minutes of the documentary where the implication is that we need more solid guys and solid women like that to take kids under their wing. If that were going to make any difference, it would have decades ago. There needs to be a more overarching action. And the people who are doing that, great. But I think that in the grand scheme of things, all they can do is hold off the tide somewhat. So what's your overarching, you know, end the war on drugs and hand out a lot of contraceptives? Yeah, and also something about the schools. What do you want to do with the schools? You want to let phonics get more choice to teach? Read? No, it's not about choice. We it's become clear over the past twenty years that that doesn't work. I used you don't think charter schools work? It doesn't seem, in terms of the data, which we have to look at, that doesn't seem to make enough of a difference for us to espouse it. Now, I wouldn't have said that ten or fifteen years. ago. I don't agree with that. That's okay. I'm not sure what the smackdown point is. It seems that that's not the solution. But teaching kids to read through teaching them what the sounds and the letters correspond via that works better than the way an awful lot of poor black kids are, are are not 
taught to read. I really do think, and I'm not trying to be simplistic, but, you know, for example, there's one kid in that documentary who says, well, by the time I was 20, I'd been in jail three or four times, and I went to jail, and I left a child behind. And I must admit, I was thinking, yeah, and the reason you went to jail was almost certainly prison, almost certainly connected with drugs. If it wasn't drugs itself, it's that you stole something because of drugs, it's that you shot somebody because you needed to show that you could do it so that you could become part of an organization. It was drugs that put you to, into prison. And then the reason that by the time you were probably around 17 or 18 and you had a kid by somebody who probably wasn't much older than that was because contraceptives were not available widely enough in your community. I wish you had had all the sex you had wanted to have. I wish you had had all the relationships you wanted to have, but you shouldn't have had a son to leave behind anyway and if there was no war on drugs you would have gone and gotten some work at a shoe store that's yeah. frankly, I, I, I think war on drugs was a mistake uh, i think you're wrong about the schools though i think there's a lot of data that charter schools they're not all great but that the better one run ones are are good and i think there's a principled argument for letting parents make choices about how their kids get educated we make those choices i assume you're making them for your kids i certainly made them for mine Pick up and move if the district isn't good enough. Buy buy a tutor or a private school if you need to. You do what you have to do to get your kids educated. Um, so I refer you to my conversation with Ian Rowe, the uh, charter school entrepreneur who uh, is uh, doing great work in the Bronx. I will. Uh, but in any case, John, you think we ought to call it a day? Only because I have to feed feed my kids. And so, yeah. I have a proposal. Um, I'm going to approach Eli Steele and see if he wants to do uh, a conversation. And if so, maybe we, we do can make a three-way. Way. We could, if he agrees. I would be into that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be yeah. a really good conversation. Okay, so why not? Is, wait, wait, wait. Yes. Why aren't you, why not? You know, now, now, right, maybe the editors are going to have to work on this because now I realize. Why not Shelby? But I know because of YouTube's history. So editors, cut this out. Oh, no, no. I like Shelby. Shelby like, I hope he likes me. I mean, uh, that's, that, that's the New York Times magazine from 20 years ago, man. Trying to pick a fight between okay. me and Shelby. So why are you inviting his son? Why not him? Like, because the son is the filmmaker and I wasn't sure that Shelby would say yes. Maybe I should have invited. Maybe I haven't, I haven't yet made a deal with anybody. Um, why, why not both of them? We get we get the filmmaker and and then we get we get the uh, the other guy. I don't know. I'll think about it. We'll we'll come up with something. I'd be I'd be into that. That'd be good. But I want to announce to the audience that uh, we're going to shake things up here at the Glenn Show. So you all need to stay tuned. We got innovations in mind. We're going big time. Uh, keep an eye out. The uh, news is coming. Uh, the Glenn Show is on the move with John McWhorter. Uh, Next time my, uh, we will start with conversation partner. That's right. <laughs>